Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now to some new and disturbing revelations in the Brian Laundry Gabby Petito case. Several pages from Laundry's notebook found near his body in Florida have been made public by his family attorney. Details now from ABC's Rena Roy. It was a case that gripped the nation, and tonight, for the first time, we're hearing from Brian Laundrie in his own words, after investigators say he murdered his girlfriend, Gabby Petito, during a cross-country road trip last summer. The FBI says Brian admitted to killing Gabby in this eight-page handwritten letter released by the Laundrie family attorney, but Brian claiming it was a mercy killing, that Gabby had fallen and was in pain. Writing in part, I ended her life. I thought it was merciful that it is what she wanted, but I see now all the mistakes I made. I panicked. I was in shock. Federal authorities say Brian strangled Gabby to death in Wyoming and returned home to Florida alone, sparking a nationwide search. Her remains later found near Grand Teton National Park. Brian and his family declined to speak with law enforcement or Gabby's parents. Brian then disappeared himself. Authorities say they found his body in a swamp near his family's home next to a notebook with that written confession saying he died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Gabby's family has filed a civil lawsuit against Brian's parents, accusing them of intentional infliction of emotional distress. The laundry's attorney has called the case baseless and is seeking to dismiss it. A judge will decide whether the laundries will face a jury within the next few weeks. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Okay, so Friday, the 24th of June, was a huge news day here in America and internationally, and I'm changing the order of my episodes due to that. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade in America. Six judges voted to repeal it. What that basically means is it's no longer a constitutional right for women to choose to have an abortion. Instead, the local state will decide. In essence, women no longer have reproductive autonomy or the ability to make health choices in our own best interest. Instead, men will decide. It really is turning the clock back 150 years, making women chattels and forcing us to carry unwanted or unhealthy babies to full term, risking our own health in the process. It's low-income women and women of colour who will suffer the most. This is about accessing health care, and it has been denied to women. The message is plain. Women are second-class citizens who cannot decide for ourselves what's in our own best interest. Make no mistake, there is nothing democratic about this. This is six judges making the decision for everyone. To me, this shows how out of touch the Supreme Court is with ordinary people, and it must be urgently reformed. I can say a lot more about this, but I'm just so angry. 
I've just been for a long run on the beach for my own mental health and self-care throughout these really troubling times. I'm struggling to get my head around it. How can this happen in 2022 in America, a country that I love and a country that's seen as progressive, yet it decides they cannot mandate on guns or to wear masks in a pandemic, but they can on women's uteruses? And the penalty for getting an abortion is much more than what the rapist would receive. How can that be right? And even more shocking is that this is in the wake of 19 children and two teachers being gunned down at school in Texas. What about their lives? Do they not count? And this at a time of a crisis in baby formula and no universal maternity leave, no universal access to health care or free childcare. This is not about protecting life or empowering and supporting women to make the right choice. This is about controlling women's choices and forcing us back into the kitchen and criminalising us if we dare exercise our own bodily autonomy. It's utterly disgraceful and the whole world is watching America. So whilst most people were reeling in shock about this decision, myself included, attorneys representing the laundries and Joe Petito and Nicole Schmidt met with the FBI at the Tampa Field Office. Now, following that meeting, an eight-page so-called confession letter written by Brian Laundrie was released by Steve Bertolino on behalf of the Laundries. And when I say released, it was released to the media. And so I took a decision, rather than continue with the police stop analysis, the episode which was queued up and ready to drop, I decided to pivot and share my analysis of Brian's so-called confession letter that was found with his human remains by the FBI. I did post on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter about the letter, and your reaction, particularly to my TikTok post, has been incredible. So you can find me at Crime Analyst Pod on TikTok, and thank you to all of those who've been messaging me and asking for this episode. So I pivoted, and here it is. And granted, this episode is slightly out of sync with the series now, but it's also really important to understand the timeline of events too. Now, this is happening now. It's dynamic and unfolding. And in my view, timing is everything. And I don't believe that releasing this letter into the media and the public domain is a coincidence. In my opinion, it's a strategic decision, and here's why. The first hearing of the lawsuit Gabby's mother and father have against the laundries took place on Wednesday the 22nd of June. Now, I watched proceedings as cameras were permitted in the court and Judge Carroll was presiding. So for those of you who aren't aware, Joe Petito and Nicole Schmidt are suing the laundries. They were also both present in court on Wednesday. The laundries were not. They were out shopping, apparently. Mr Matthew Luca represented them and Mr Pat Riley represented Gabby's mother and father. The grounds of the lawsuit are that the laundries caused intentional infliction of emotional distress. As Joe Petito and Nicole Schmidt claim that the laundries knew Brian had murdered their daughter Gabby and chose not to act. Gabby's parents, Joe and Nicole, say that whilst they were frantically searching for their daughter Gabby and calling Roberta and Christopher Laundry that they, the Laundries, kept Brian's whereabouts secret and Roberta blocked Nicole on the phone and Facebook. Now, the first hearing of the lawsuit against the Laundries was on Wednesday, the 22nd of June. As I mentioned, cameras were permitted in court and I've been tracking the case as it unfolds. I'm going to do an episode on the lawsuit itself. 
It's precedential as far as I know, and so it's a really important one to watch. And so given the lawsuit, I believe the timing of the FBI meeting and the publication of the letter, and I'm calling it a letter, are connected. Now, I wondered whether the notebook, i.e. the letter, would be disclosed as part of the discovery if the case went to a jury trial. And we'll know in two weeks, as Judge Carroll said he would make his decision then. It was Steve Bertolino who released the notebook, the letter, and he said that it was a, inverted commas, matter of transparency. And I was surprised that he said this and that it was released. And then I thought about it. I thought about the turbulence and aftershock of Roe versus Wade decision on a Friday, and then it made sense. Friday is called News Dump Day, i.e. anything you want to bury, you drop on a Friday. And even better if there's really big news like Roe versus Wade to distract people. Also, once the FBI turned it over to the laundries, they couldn't just sit on it. And with the potential for it to come out at court, that it had been handed over to them, and they had done nothing, particularly given the grounds of the lawsuit. That would not have been a good look for them. But let's not forget it was the laundries who found Brian's dry bag. Cast your mind back to the 20th of October 2021. The laundries suddenly decided to help with the search. They met a Northport detective and a member of the FBI and set off into the Mayakahatchee Creek Environmental Park where apparently extensive searches had been hindered by the floodwaters until that point. They went to the swamp for a look at where they believed their son had disappeared two weeks earlier, and Fox News Digital say that they followed Christopher and Roberta there. Now, rather bizarrely, Christopher Laundrie apparently stumbled across a dry bag that later turned out to belong to his son. The dry bag contained the notebook, and what I'm now referring to as the so-called confession letter. And I'm calling it the so-called confession letter for a reason, and I'll tell you more after I've read it to you. If you wish to read it yourself in your own time, I posted copies on Instagram, at Crime Analyst, Twitter, at The Crime Analyst, and on my Laura Richards Facebook page, both the original eight-page letter and the typed copy, as it's not easy to read. Remember, it's apparently been submerged underwater in the dry bag for weeks. Okay, so this is what it says. I'll read it clean first, and then I'll break down key sections and share my preliminary analysis and opinion with you. So it starts addressed to Gabby. Gabby, I wish I was right at your side. I wish I could be talking to you right now. I'd be going through every memory we've made, getting even more excited for the future. I can't live without you. I've lost every day we could have spent together. Every holiday. I'll never get to play with... The next word is unintelligible. Again. Never go hiking with TJ. I loved you more than anything. I can't bear to look at our photos. To recall great times because it's why I cannot go on. When I close my eyes, I would think of laying on the roof of the van falling asleep to the sight of a meteor shower at the crystal geyser. I will always love you. If you were reading Gabs's journal, looking at the photos from our life together, flipping through old cards, you wouldn't want to live a day without her. Knowing that every day you'll wake up without her, you wouldn't want to wake up. 
I'm sorry to everyone this will affect. Gabby was the love of my life, but I know adored by many. I'm so very sorry to her family, because I love them. I'd consider her younger siblings my best friends. I'm sorry to my family. This is a shock to them, as well as a terrible grief. They loved as much, if not more, than me. A new daughter to my mother, an aunt to my nephews. Please do not make this harder for them. This occurred as an unexpected tragedy. Rushing back to our car, trying to cross the streams of Spread Creek before it got too dark to see, too cold. I hear a splash and a scream. I could barely see. I couldn't find her for a moment, shouted her name. I found her breathing heavily, gasping my name. She was freezing cold. We had just came from the blazing hot national parks in Utah. The temperature had dropped to freezing and she was soaking wet. I carried her as far as I could down the stream towards the car, stumbling exhausted in shock when my knees buckled and knew I couldn't safely carry her. I started a fire and spooned her as close to the heat. She was so thin, had already been freezing too long. I couldn't at the time realise that I should have started a fire first, but I wanted her out of the cold back to the car. From where I started the fire, I had no idea how far the car might be. Only knew it was across the creek. When I pulled Gabby out of the water, she couldn't tell me what hurt. She had a small bump on her forehead that eventually got larger. Her feet hurt, her wrist hurt, but she was freezing, shaking violently, while carrying her, she continually made sounds of pain. Laying next to her, she said little, lapsing between violent shakes, gasping in pain, begging for an end to her pain. She would fall asleep and I would shake her awake, fearing she shouldn't close her eyes if she had a concussion. She would wake in pain, start the whole painful cycle again, while furious that I was the one waking her. She wouldn't let me try to cross the creek, thought like me that this fire would go out in her sleep and should freeze. I don't know the extent of Gabby's injuries, only that she was in extreme pain. I ended her life. I thought it was merciful, that it is what she wanted, but I see now all the mistakes I made. I panicked, I was in shock, but from the moment I decided, took away her pain, I knew I couldn't go on without her. I rushed home to spend any time I had left with my family. I wanted to drive north and let James or TJ kill me, but I wouldn't want them to spend time in jail over my mistake, even though I'm sure they would have liked to. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm ending my life not because of a fear of punishment, but rather because I can't stand to live another day without her. I've lost our whole future together, every moment we could have cherished. I'm sorry for everyone's loss. Please do not make life harder for my family. They lost a son and a daughter, the most wonderful girl in the world. Gabby, I'm sorry. 
I have killed myself by this creek in the hopes that animals may tear me apart, that it may make some of her family happy. Please pick up all of my things. Gabby hated people who litter. Okay, that's what it ends with. Please pick up all of my things. Gabby hated people who litter. I have to say it's the strangest letter and ending. Now, a note would be something like, I killed Gabby. I can't live with what I've done. I'm sorry, Brian. That's a note. But this is eight pages long, with an instruction at the end. Brian's still giving orders and trying to control people's reaction and behaviour right up until the end of his life. Also, the instruction about littering is in keeping with one of the last posts on Gabby's Instagram about the plastic packaging. Brian went on and on about plastic water bottles during the police stop. Brian, not Gabby. In fact, Gabby was holding two water bottles in her hand at the end of the police stop while she was still crying. It was Brian who refused the bottles of water. All this does is provide further evidence that it was most likely Brian who had the issue and that it was Brian posting on Gabby's Instagram. Oh, what a tangled web he weaved. More on that in another episode. So my first thought when I read the letter was, what is the purpose of the letter? What's its aim? The letter was addressed to Gabby. That's important. But if it were really to Gabby, why is Brian telling her what happened and talking about her in the third person after the initial opening paragraph? Gabby already knows what happened. Ergo, he doesn't need to describe what happened to her. In my opinion, this is much more about Brian claiming the narrative. It's a one-way message, but he wanted his voice to be heard. In my opinion, the letter is self-indulgent and self-absorbed. And it's his narrative, of course. And the narrative is all about him. In fact, in the first five sentences, there are eight eyes. So Brian first wrote that he wished that he was at Gabby's side, at her side, not by her side, and he wished he could be talking to her, to her and not with her. These are quite small details, but they depict to me that they're not equal partners. He wrote that he can't live without her, and he's lost every day with her, and he cannot go on, and he'll always love her. He repeated again that Gabby was the love of his life and he's sorry to her family as he loves them and he considers her younger siblings his best of friends and he's sorry to his family and their terrible grief and grief is spelt wrong. That's one of 14 words that's spelt wrong or where there's grammatical error or where there's a tense issue, 14, and that he didn't want people to make it harder for his family. And so that's the setup. There's a lot of extraneous information. And then he goes into the unexpected tragedy that occurred. Well, he wrote, this occurred as an unexpected tragedy. So let's break that down. That this occurred like it's something that just happened. And it was unexpected and a tragedy. Now for a confession, this is very passive. This so-called unexpected tragedy did not just occur. It happened at Brian's hands, and it was preventable. A tragedy implies it was something that happened, that they had no control over it, but he did have control over events, and he didn't call for help. Her death was caused 100% by him. 
He launches into how it happened, that they were allegedly rushing back to our car trying to cross the stream before it got too dark to see, comma, too cold. I hear a splash and a scream. I could barely see. I couldn't find her for a moment, comma, shouted her name. Okay, so this is all rather conveniently vague. He wrote, I hear a splash and a scream. I could barely see. I couldn't find her for a moment, shouted her name. Surely they were walking close together, if it were dark. And they had a torch, right? I mean, you would use your phone if nothing else. So why could he barely see? Then he claims he couldn't find her for a moment. So only a moment passes. He says, shouted her name, not I called her name and kept shouting for her. He dropped the I, which is instructive to me that even he's not buying it. These are indicators of deception. He then wrote, I found her breathing heavily, comma, gasping. She was freezing cold. Dot, 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 the blazing hot national parks in Utah. This is very odd. He doesn't describe where he found her or where she was. He doesn't describe anything spatially. For example, I had to get down on my hands and knees, using my hands to feel on the ground for her. Now, that would indicate veracity. Instead, he wrote, I found her breathing heavily, comma, gasping. She was freezing cold. The blazing hot national parks in Utah. So apparently Gabby was breathing heavily. Why? Why was she gasping? The temperature had dropped to freezing and she was soaking wet, so he said, and the extraneous information about the park being hot, well, it's just that, extraneous, it's unnecessary, and it's an attempt to distract and deflect. He then wrote, I carried her as far as I could down the stream towards the car, stumbling exhausted in shock, when my knees buckled and knew I couldn't safely carry her. Okay, so if he's carrying Gabby toward the car, if he were that disorientated, how did he know that it was towards the car? He wrote about his exhaustion and shock, but not about Gabby. He wants us to know he's a hero going above and beyond, doing all that he can. I started a fire, he wrote. Just like that? Well, how did he start that fire, and with what? Again, there is a lack of detail. He doesn't give any details about how he did that. Surely he must have laid Gabby down. What was she doing? Again, these are more indicators of deception. He then wrote that he spooned her as close to the heat. She was so thin, had already been freezing too long. I couldn't at the time realise that I should have started a fire first, but I wanted her out of the cold back to the car. From where I started the fire, I had no idea how far the car might be, only knew it was across the creek. So a word is missing here, a very important word, she being Gabby. And these sentences don't really make too much sense. The five lines about not knowing how far the car was are, in my opinion, an oversell, an overcompensation about a fact he believes important, but he's labouring the point, which tells me that even Brian is not buying what he's selling. Why focus on this detail when mid-story about Gabby and what happened? In my opinion, he knew exactly where the car was, and he was close to it. Now he goes into some detail next, but it's all still quite vague and makes no real sense. 
He wrote, When I pulled Gabby out of the water, she couldn't tell me what hurt. So he's now saying that he pulled her out of water. He didn't say that before. That was omitted. What water? The creek water? Was it shallow or deep? The lack of details are again indicators of deception. He continued, She had a small bump on her forehead that eventually got larger. Her feet hurt, her wrist hurt, but she was freezing, shaking violently. While carrying her, she continually made sounds of pain. Laying next to her, she said little. Lapsing between violent shakes, gasping in pain, begging for an end to her pain. She would fall asleep and I would shake her awake, fearing she shouldn't close her eyes if she had a concussion. Okay, let's break that down. Firstly, why could Gabby not tell him what hurt? And she had a small bump. How did he know that? Could he see it? If he could, he could obviously see. Her feet and wrist hurt, he wrote. Now, these are not life-limiting or life-threatening injuries that would cause major harm or pain from the sounds of it. Also, he says she was violently shaking and makes much of the cold and her freezing. He implies a hypothermic state. But interestingly, when you have hypothermia, you don't violently shake. You're calm. Also, many people feel like they're hot, and so they try and take their clothes off, even though they're freezing cold. But that's not what he described. Now, I believe the reason he doesn't describe that is because Brian's making it up. It never happened. He's describing what he thinks would happen. Also, if Gabby were in pain... She may want the pain to end, but I doubt Gabby was begging for him to kill her. That's just fanciful. And remember that this is a letter addressed to Gabby, but the text is about her, not to her. He continued, She would wake in pain, start her whole painful cycle again, furious that I was the one waking her. She wouldn't let me try to cross the creek, thought like me that the fire would go out in her sleep and she'd freeze. I don't know the extent, rather than extent, of Gabby's injuries, only that she was in extreme pain. I ended her life. I thought it was merciful, that it is what she wanted, but I see now all the mistakes I made. I panicked. I was in shock. But from the moment I decided, took away her pain, I knew I couldn't go on without her. So let's break this section down. This is truly unbelievable and fantastical. Firstly, he wrote Gabby was furious that he was the one waking her. That's doubtful if she were truly that unwell and out of it. And it's an interesting use of the word furious here. Brian's still casting Gabby in an unfavourable and negative light, even though apparently she's in a lot of pain. But the other side to that is he's casting himself as the rational hero. Brian claimed Gabby wouldn't let him cross the creek. Again, that's doubtful. If it were to save her life, you would just do it. Time is of the essence. It's your beloved and every second counts. Plus, they would have had their phones on them, or at least one of them would have. I'm sure that they would not have gone a whole day without a phone, particularly given the fact that Gabby was trying to be an influencer. But he makes no mention of a phone or even trying to call for help or shout out for help even. Why not? Because in my opinion, it just never happened this way. 
He wrote that he didn't know the extent of Gabby's injuries, only that she was in extreme pain. Again, this is an oversell on her pain. He then wrote, not knowing the extent of Gabby's injuries, that he took a decision and he ended Gabby's life. In other words, he manually strangled and throttled Gabby to death. Now, that's what the purpose of this letter is for, yet he chooses this language, he ended her life. Not that he brutally killed her, but of course he says that it was merciful and it's what she wanted. How utterly fantastical. Of course Gabby didn't want that. The framing of it and the language are just fascinating. It talks completely to his mindset and almost as if she were an injured animal or a pet that he had to end the suffering of and put to sleep. It's instructive to me and it's further evidence of Brian's supercharged sense of entitlement and ownership of Gabby. He actually believed he should be the one to do this, to have the power and control over her life. And ironically, that he's the hero for taking this tough decision to ending her suffering, like it's a merciful killing. By God, his entitlement is off the charts. He strangled Gabby, manually. We know that from the autopsy. Also, just in terms of extraneous information, 80% of this is extraneous and it's all about him, which again points to deception and manipulation and, of course, narcissism. I hear strong tones of poor me syndrome at the point of accountability. I coined this term as I often see it with men who do heinous things to women who've tried to deceive and manipulate others into believing that they didn't do it at first and then when they realise that there's no way out, they try and garner and elicit sympathy and empathy or more accurately put, hympathy. I also believe Brian's trying to frame himself as a hero just like he did in the police stop. He was the calm, patient man with Gabby and he sorted her out. Well, here he is again in his mind doing the same. He lied throughout the police stop too. I bore witness to his lies on camera. I saw it for myself and I've been unpacking it in each episode of Crime Analyst in this series. Brian had no qualms about deceiving and manipulating law enforcement. And let me be clear, it worked before... And that would have emboldened him. And that's exactly why he's left this letter, supposedly to Gabby, in the hope that it works again. So the first few paragraphs are all about Brian. The typos are interesting too, and lack of care and thought regarding grammar, and the change in tense at times from present to past. This is exactly what I said and opined in the last five posts on Gabby's Instagram. Also, I think it's very interesting what reporter Brian Entin was saying on Friday. Now, Brian covered this case from the start, and he did a great job, so be sure to check out his Twitter account. He said that he went to the spot that Gabby was killed. He said it was remote, but the dirt road was off a main highway, and that it's right next to the creek laundry referenced in his letter, and the creek was next to where the van was parked. So why didn't he call for help? or drive her to a hospital? Why didn't he call someone? Importantly, Brian Entin said that he did have cell service there. Here's Brian. Listen to what he had to say. Yeah, I get it. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. The first time I read it, um, 
through through the eight pages, that was my first thought. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. This can't be, especially because like in my mind, I was going back to the place where Gabby Petito was killed just because I'd been out there. So I was visualizing it as I was reading the letter and it just wasn't adding up. Um, the creek there was close to where the van was, maybe a five minute walk um, where her body was found, where she was murdered was maybe a 10 minute walk from the van. It's remote, but it's also right off of this dirt road where there are a ton of campers coming, coming and going. And then right up the dirt road is, is a pretty major highway. The cell phone service is good there. So this whole theory that there was no one to help, um, it, I just don't, I don't buy it having been out there. Um, and again, the main reason is because of the proximity to the van and then also the cell phone service being good. Um, you could have made a call, you could have done something. It just, it doesn't add up to me. So I just don't believe that they are in the middle of nowhere. And interestingly, Brian doesn't say what happened afterwards, how he found the van and so forth. But what we do know is that he left Gabby there. His beloved, he left Gabby all alone at the mercy of predatory animals and critters and Brian decided to return home to be with his family. He could have called for help the next day if it was an accident. He had many chances to do the right thing. And yet he returned home in Gabby's van, having used her bank card and money. Yet so his story goes, he told no one. His parents ask no questions, and he goes off with them and has a good time on holiday. So let's just get this straight. Brian expects us to believe that he strangled and throttled Gabby to death to end her suffering. Now, it takes a lot to callously strangle and asphyxiate someone, particularly the woman that you love. And then you say nothing about it to anyone? And he just carried on as if it never happened? Remember, he repeatedly wrote that he loved her in the letter. But the way that he behaved, his actions show that it was all about him. And the letter is just a further example of his narcissism. Now, I believe he was sending text messages to Nicole, pretending to be Gabby. If that were him, he was trying to get away with it. Meanwhile, Gabby's mum and dad, Nicole and Joe, are beside themselves with worry as any parent would be, frantically calling Brian and Roberta and Christopher Laundry, and they don't return their calls. In fact, so the lawsuit goes, according to Nicole, Roberta blocked Nicole on the phone and Facebook and kept Brian's whereabouts a secret. They do the exact opposite, all the while allegedly knowing nothing about what happened to Gabby. That's really curious to me. And also in the timeline, Brian returns home on the 1st of September and the laundry parents send a retainer to attorney Steve Bertolino on the 2nd of September. And yes, it's their right to lawyer up. But why would you need a lawyer if you claim to know nothing about what happened to Gabby? Why would you not speak with the parents of the woman who's been living under your roof the woman who you supposedly treated and felt like was a daughter to you, so they say. It just makes no sense at all. For me, everything about Brian's behaviour was about protecting himself, and everything about his parents' behaviour was about protecting themselves and Brian, in my opinion. It's not about Gabby, and it never has been, nor has it been about helping her parents as a matter of transparency, in my opinion. According to Dr. Blue, Wyoming's Teton County coroner, 
Gabby's death was ruled a homicide as a result of manual strangulation and blunt force trauma to the head and neck. Brian strangled Gabby to death. Sadly, it's a really common way for a man to kill an intimate partner. Brian killed Gabby because he could. It was his final act of control. And now the letter is his final attempt at controlling the narrative. Brian was a controlling man. He was a domestic abuser. And it wouldn't surprise me if Gabby had said to him that she had had enough and that she was going to finally leave him. Brian was a liar and manipulator right up to the end. He wanted the last word, as most domestic abusers do. They want to rewrite history with them as the hero in their own story. He murdered Gabby. And even at the end, he cannot take responsibility for his actions. He wanted to claim the narrative, and we have to ensure that he, Brian, does not get the last word. So I'm ending this episode with Gabby uppermost in mind, the sweet, beautiful soul that Gabby was, who saw good in everybody and wanted to live her best life. Hashtag her name was Gabby Petito. Join me next week back in the intelligence cell. Until then... Be curious, ask questions, always trust your instinct and call out BS whenever you see it. Take care and be safe. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. Others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.